0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: My guest here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Rui Wang. He is the Dean in the Faculty of Science at York University. We are talking to Dr. Wang today about a conversation article he wrote. It's called The Surprising Reason for Eating Less Meat is Linked to a Longer Life, a Smelly Toxic Gas. A little bit more about Dr. Wang. He holds a Ph.D. in physiology from the University of Alberta and an M.D. from Weifang Medical College in China. He is an internationally respected scholar and leader in the study of biometrical importance of hydrogen sulfite. And that's going to, I think, lead to the article that we are going to be talking to Dr. Wang about. Dr. Wang, welcome to the show. Thank you, David.
3: And uh, and thank you for the invitation. I really like and uh, taking the moment of truth mm. and think about the moment of mindfulness of our habit, our lifestyle, and how that is related to our health. And I really appreciate this opportunity.
2: Ah, well, thank you for saying that. Much appreciated. So, Dr. Wang, I was, you know, at first when I saw your article, I thought it was going to be just another one of those uh, articles about... You know, how, how maybe eating healthy might change and, and eating less meat. We've all heard about that. And you start right off by talking about the high-protein diets that are big out there right now. Everybody uh, wants to grab some, you know, some eggs, which are, of course, really high in protein, really good in that regard. But you take it further. You, you talk about that there's evidence that uh, restricting which proteins we eat, particularly in meat, could help be important for the aging process.
3: Yeah, this is an interesting uh, concept. Actually, it's not a new one. Mm. And in the if we go back, doesn't matter scientific practice or in our daily life, uh, there's always like a diet restriction that may offer a certain degree of health benefit to certain populations. Mm. Uh, the reason I'm saying that, for example, in the aged people, and would be different from the children who is in the face of growing. Mm. So their demand to protein are quite different. Right. And uh, scientific evidence accumulated so far indicate that if you eat less meat and uh, which means you digest less proteins, and your lifespan may be prolonged because the kind of anti-aging or longevity. And also the general health would be improved. However, you know, this uh, there's a question mark about how can you do experiment on human beings? If you look at uh, people's longevity, that would be looking for 80 years 100 years, mm. and no experiment can be really controlled under that condition and for that long observation. So the scientists, including myself, we took the approach is, okay, let's find some kind of models. See, for example, you can see at a short period of time, if you take a cell isolated from our body, either from liver or from blood vessel, we can incubate them in the, under the experimental condition to see how the cell can proliferate or duplicate their population. By doing so, we can mimic and a whole body and aging process. So this kind of advance in the research technique leading to the discovery of the one another and the showing The diet, the general diet restriction actually is because the limited uptake of one group of amino acid we called sulfur amino acid. Mm. They contain proteins. You don't need to general restrict diet or Mm. protein, but you are more um, selectively and restrict the sulfur-containing amino acid and those proteins. So this will be kind of both from a scientific point of view and from a practical point of view. It's much more practicable. Uh, So now the story goes like this now. If you reduce sulfur amino acid uptake, which mostly in the meat proteins Mm. uh, rather than plant proteins, Mm. you will have and boost up the h 2s which is hydrogen sulfate, that we call the farting gas, mm. and reduce that production in our body by our cells. And the hydrogen sulfide actually is a, a go-to guy that will protect our body from aging and from many aging-related diseases. And you see, this whole evolution starts from the total diet restriction to selective protein diet restriction and then identify the key molecule hydrogen in our body then link everything together it's
2: it's really interesting to think about how that could be linked back to the, to this hydrogen sulfite h uh, h2s gas that you're referring to what comes to mind is what wh- how how it is different in absorbing that from plants versus a meat or or poultry or or other ways of, of absorbing that in plant based do you have any idea why there is a difference in 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 I guess how the body takes that and and utilizes it in the in
3: in itself. Our body is marvelous. It's magic. Sure. And uh, we have a kind of a, you call it mysterious or kind of a delicate mechanism to regulate our the process inside our body. Mm. Especially when we take the sulfur containing amino acid, mostly we talk about the methionine and cysteine, the these two amino acids. Mm. And uh, they are, we have to take them from diet, especially methionine. Mm-hmm. So when we take it, so in our cells, there are some sensors, just like in our house, if you have a CO detector,
1: mm-hmm.
3: when the CO level changes, and it will uh, trigger the alarm. So in our bodies, there's also sulfur amino acid sensors. So when, in, if the sulfur amino acid content in our diet is too high, and that will trigger that sensor will decrease, uh, kind of will increase the general protein synthesize, that will lead to speed up all the process and speed up the aging process. Mm. On the mm. other hand, if sulfur amino acid level is low in diet, And that will make the sensor in our body activated and more. So this sensor will decrease a general protein synthesis. However, we will stimulate a specific group of protein. Those protein in our body produce hydrogen sulfide.
1: Mm.
3: Now you can see there's a two-sided story. General synthesis of protein decreased. However, H2S production protein will be increased. Now, you can think about the picture there is there's a, a fire, like a potential fire will be put down, but you have a more fire and uh, uh, extinguisher there. And that is hydrogen sulfide. go through our body to looking at any potential risk for aging, so H2S will be there to say, okay, I will do something to slow you down or prevent from happening.
2: Mm. Again, you, you refer to this um, this hydrogen sulfite that's, that's poisonous to us if we inhale it, too much of it, as you're saying. But, it, but it's healthy and promotes health inside the body. So it's going back to that two-sided thing that you that you were talking about. And it acts as a chemical messenger. Can you explain what you mean by a chemical messenger?
3: The chemical messenger, almost like if we have uh, a mail and uh, from the post office, came in, you need the, uh, and the people deliver that letter Mm. to your house. Doesn't matter if it's a tax or or it's uh, refunding a check. Mm. And when you, so that delivering is a messenger. That messenger comes to you, your house and lets you know to see you need to do something. You either pay the bill or you and cash your check. Mm. <laughs> so hydrogen sulfide is such a messenger. Mm. We call it a chemical messenger. Mm. When our body or the environment where we live in have produced some changes, regardless of good or bad, and hydrogen sulfate will sense that change and immediately tell uh, the people, or oh, not the people, other molecules, organs in our body to see something happening. Mm. Now, in order to boost up its benefit, we need to do the following. In order to decrease the damage, we need to do the others. Mm. So hydrogen sulfate as a messenger coordinate our body's activity in many, many functions, like our brain, liver, kidney, and heart, and even our reproduction system. Hmm. So it's really a universal, but also very critical chemical messenger.
2: It's really fascinating. Like you said, the body is amazing. And the more I do these kind of interviews that we learn about the human body, and how we take it for granted and all the wonderful things and how that it not only does for us, but just the way we are put together. And uh, we, we have been given so much uh, in this, this uh, shell that we live in. We just don't even know some of the things that it's doing. And you hear it just carries on and does those things innately for us and allows us to do other things more interesting to us.
3: Yeah, certainly. See, the, uh, see another example is, uh, we talk about longevity mm. and we talk about the health. There's many age related problem disease like mm. myself. Mm. I have osteoarthritis mm. and uh, the joint pain, the muscle pain uh, is almost my, my specialists tell me the only way is later on just to replace your hip. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, however, I I probably gave a different answer. You may not need to go to that extreme. Hydrogen sulfide may hold the key mm. for many of those aging de- related diseases, such mm. as um, arthritis and hydrogen sulfide can reduce the inflammation, right. reduce uh, joint pain, and really through that process. And either you can through the diet or you can through pharmaceutical mm. and, uh, and approach and certainly, the discovery of hydrogen sulfide really opened the door, and for many many mysteries, and also many and um, and disease, and mm. for mm. for the new therapies.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we want to talk about the future looking forward with uh, pharmaceutical companies and what they might be working on and trying to develop in that regard. So I thank you for bringing that up. But before we get there, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, you can also listen on all of your favorite podcast platforms as well. My guest is Dr. Rui Wang. He's the Dean uh, and the Faculty of Science at York University. My old school, by the way, Dr. Wang. I went to York University myself. And uh, we were talking to him about an article he wrote in The Conversation. It's called The Surprising Reason Eating Less Meat is Linked to a Longer Life, a Smelly Toxic Gas. And we've been talking about that, uh, hydrogen sulfite. But a little bit more about uh, Dr. Wang. His research programs have been supported by research grants from all three granting councils, the NSERC, the SSHRC, and the IC pardon me, the CIHR, and he has trained more than 120 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows and other research personnel. So it's a pleasure to have uh, Dr. Wang on the show. Now, Dr. Wang, one of the things, you were just talking about longevity, and I noticed in your article that... uh, Studies have been done since the 1990s that show that reducing intake of certain uh, sulfate-containing amino acids uh, are the building blocks uh, of proteins make the longevity in rats, wow, we're increased by 30%. That sounds incredible. 30% sounds
3: like a lot to me. Uh, Definitely, and uh, let alone 30%, even 10% Mm. would be uh, very significant. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in this field, the longevity study and majority uh, uh, majority study and it kind of carried on, on the at the cellular level or the animal level. Like in, in the research we conducted with my colleague and led by and the research team at Harvard, and we carried on, on the mice and the fruit, mm-hmm. fly,
1: mm-hmm.
3: worm, and yeast. You can see the whole spectrum of the different cellular and species. And for example, you can see from the, if you look at the worm, and uh, by restricting sulfur amino acids, 30 to 40% in their feeding, and that we can prolong their life from like 30 days to 45 days. Wow. from the fruit for fly the similar thing kind of if they can have uh, survival and will be cert- certainly extend significantly
1: mm.
3: the key point when we try to do translational study to see how those results can be applied to you and me and we are not guinea pig right and uh, no one will test us <laughs> and uh, so this is kind of one limitation. We need to be careful when we interpret this data to see how that will affect human being. There's a limitation, so we need to be very careful. Think about our diet. Think about the long term benefit. And especially, I probably want to emphasize when we talk about sulfur amino acid restriction in our diet, it's not means eliminating them. Mm. And currently, in the North America, in my article, I said, "And our daily intake of a sulfur amino acid actually is 2.5 times higher than what our body needed." Right. So then, now you can see, let alone restriction, let's step one, go back to our required level. That already. 2.5 times, even mm. 250 times decrease already. Mm. And that will bring to the normal level. And then we talk about the restriction. And certainly, that would be a really benefit to, to us. Mm. And also, I need to see for the children right. and for the people in the growing phase of their body. Mm. So, really, we need a protein to build up our new cell, our new organ, and also uh, our bone, all those things, Mm. I don't think restriction is a good idea for that population. Mm. So it uh, it needs to be a balance, kind of analytical about research discovery and how would be the best way to apply to human beings.
2: Right, right, of course. And and now what you did find, though, in research research, on animals and what you were just talking about, uh, not only the longevity, but this had positive effects in other areas, uh, cardiovascular, um, liver, uh, liver disease, uh, cancer, I understand.
3: Uh, It's a wide spectrum. That's why we said hydrogen sulfide is a magic Mm. molecule. Mm. And our early study, let's go back to uh, 2008, we find if somehow we can engineering, And the production of hydrogen sulfide in the mice. And uh, what happened, we we will eliminate H2S production from the uh, body cells. And those animals will develop hypertension, which means high blood pressure, Mm. much earlier than regular normal uh, species. So it's, a, it's really, that's the first piece of evidence to show H2S produced in our body on I mean in the a living body mm. can really contribute to the balance. And we call the homeostasis, mm-hmm. which means everything's in balance of our health. So also another study we showing the asthma. Mm. If we can increase h 12 level in our body, the happening of asthma in the childhood will much decrease. Hmm. So a, that's a kind of a lead to the f- interesting phenomenon. Why? I mean, the children living in the farm all in a relatively not that clean environment. Early on, those children, their chance to get asthma is much lower than... And the children live in a super clean environment with exposure to the environment. <laughs> it's because we find the reason is, when you early on exposed to the environment, and um, then you'll we'll boost up your body production of hydrogen sulfide. Mm. Because when we were young, our H2S level in body is low. Mm. When we getting, gradually getting into the adult, hold, hydrogen sulfide production will catch up then the chance to get asthma will Mm. be much lower. Mm. So these are a few examples to show at a different development stage. H2S play a different role, but very critical for the health.
2: Right, right. Different stages of life. Okay. Now, there was, uh, I believe a bit of a survey done uh, on some humans that was done, uh, is it uh, last year, 2020? About 11,000 mm-hmm. adults. And what did you find from, from that? See, the, the
3: survey is uh, really they talk about their lifestyle habit. Okay. And uh, I think that's kind of a good indication to support the animal or cellular mm. experiment data. Mm. And that would really I think if you use as a guideline, that guideline tell us yes indeed, if we eat less meat, we will be healthier and uh, and if we control our diet and keep good lifestyle, the disease, cardiovascular disease, neurological disease will be much less. Hmm. I think that's a good indication,
2: right. Okay. So, turning more towards plant-based proteins. Now, uh, beans, lentils, legumes, all good uh, sources of protein and low in, in the sulfur amino acids that we're talking about, correct?
3: Mm-hmm. And so, this is kind of a recommended plant-based protein. Uh, but it's, you see an exception is yes. about the soil. Like a soybean yes. and uh, related products, they have a higher Ah uh, content of sulfur amino acid right. again, and I have no answer why so uh, but that's kind of uh, the truth yeah. so we need to be and uh, um, mindful and uh, to be more selective,
2: yes. Interesting stuff for sure. So the the soya and uh, uh, soy based protein, that t- which produces the tofu, uh, they are they are high in the in the sulfur amino acids. Now also mm-hmm. broccoli it, it has the sulfur, but not in an am- amino acid form.
3: This is uh, another. If we want to make the, the picture more complicated, <laughs> and this another area. Now right. people say uh, the complexity brings the beauty. Uh, That could be the truth. We need to differentiate between sulfur and the sulfur amino acid. Mm. In my view, especially when we look at our diet, there's many uh, diets, for example, plant, vegetable, which has no sulfur amino acid, which means there's no protein, Mm. but they are higher in sulfur. Mm. Say, for example, uh, garlic, Oh yeah. Uh, there's lots of sulfur, but they don't have sulfur amino acid. Hmm. And uh, the similar foods, there's a lot uh, like radish, mm-hmm. uh, like a kale, mm-hmm. like a cabbage, mm-hmm. like onion. And uh, these foods are really, really great. And people also call them a prebiotics mm-hmm. diet. Uh so, so what happens when you take those diets? It will offer hydrogen sulfide directly. Mm. And you know, the the ultimate gate is to produce more hydrogen sulfide for our body. Mm. Now, this diet will provide hydrogen sulfide directly, while sulfur amino acid will indirectly and uh, kind of suppress our body production of hydrogen sulfide. So, the principle, kind of my personal guideline, is when we choose the food, we want them to have higher content of sulfur but a low content of sulfur amino acid. Right.
2: Fascinating. Very interesting stuff. Now, you say and finish off your article by talking about how we want to make sure and and have this kind of delivered to specific areas of our body. You were saying that some pharmaceuticals are now working to to try and uh, get a delivery system uh, for that.
3: Yes. Uh, You know, the Longevity or aging is a lifelong process, and of course, and uh, dealing with diet would be most reasonable way and um, to handle lifestyle.
1: Mm.
3: However, there's some, there's a numerous disease, and uh, cardiovascular disease and uh, uh, neurological, and uh, you name it. Those disease you want to s- through a slow process to get a sufficient amount of hydrogen sulfur produced and to keep that level in certain part of our body will be much more challenging for diet approach.
1: Mm.
3: And the diet is most effective for prevention and for the long-term process. So therefore, pharmaceutical approach, it cannot be replaced and for dealing with disease and uh, to provide therapies. Mm. And the good news is currently there's a multiple uh, pharmaceutical companies the, in the world and some even, and also based in Canada who develop and suffer delivering drugs. Mm. And for example, I just mentioned for the arthritis, mm-hmm. for the muscle pain. And I will, I also know there's a, some of them already into the clinical trial and a very late stage. And probably very soon we will be, and benefited from those uh, new inventions from the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. I think that would be the combination of dietary lifestyle change with a pharmaceutical intervention We will really and put hydrogen sulfide into the central stage for the prevention and the treatment of many uh, diseases and improve our health.
2: Right. Dr. Wang, fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. This has been really, really interesting for all that great work that you're doing. And I want to thank you for bringing this to our attention and uh, putting that article out there for people to see and to go and read and maybe make some personal changes by reading the article, as well as uh, what could be coming down the the pipe uh, future-wise in terms of this development. So thank you once again for joining us.
3: Thank you, David, for having me today. And uh, it's really my pleasure to share my view. That's
2: Dr. Rui Wang. He is the Dean in the Faculty of Science at York University. I was talking to him about an article he wrote in the conversation called The Surprising Reason Eating Less Meat is Linked to a Longer Life, a Smelly Toxic Gas. You can see that on the conversation. And uh, we were talking specifically about one hydrogen sulfide, H2S, is, the, is what it's called as a gas. A pleasure to have him on the show. That is this part of the program. Don't go away because we will be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: My guest here on Moment of Truth is Professor Rory McReal. He is a professor and UNESCO and ICDE Chair in Open Educational Resources at Athabasca University. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show. We're talking to him about an article he authored in the conversation entitled How Blockchain Could Help the World Meet the UN's Global Goals in Higher Education. So, Dr. Rory, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for your kind invitation.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Now, blockchain, of course, is something we've heard about in terms of uh, Bitcom and those kind of things. But... I understand that blockchain is, is changing. It's uh, being looked at, I guess, by many as a way that could uh, be used not only in business but in education, especially as we move forward to try and look at the future of education. You have some numbers that you uh, start your article with about, uh, by 2025, more than 100 million learners uh, will be estimated to be capable of higher education but are not going to have access to that. Yeah, either because they won't be able to afford it or there won't be access to it, uh, there won't be the, the schools, there won't be the uh, the instructors available. There's a number of reasons why people may not have that av- availability to them.
0: Uh, yes, and uh, I uh, I believe it was uh, John Daniel, the former director of the Commonwealth of Learning, uh, he claimed in 2015 that in order to meet the needs of these students capable of post-secondary education that there'd be about uh, around 100 million or more and uh, without accessibility and that in order to help them and to meet their needs uh, to do it by traditional means it would take thirty thousand. sorry it would take three universities a week to be built from 2015 to 2025 of thirty thousand students each, and uh, the point—the point of his message is—is is that we have to find alternate ways of delivering learning uh, to these students and to allow them to go forward with their uh, university education. Mm. And uh, of course, being online, as we've learned uh, through this COVID uh, uh, pandemic, is that it's uh, quite functional and. Uh, uh, quite people are quite able to learn online and in fact in a modern economy like we have today is if you're not learning online you're not really learning how to participate in a modern economy mm. the world economy is online mm. society is online mm. and what are we going to do keep our our universities not online well covid has taught us that now we can all go online, and it's uh, been uh, uh, remarkably effective to the surprise of many people, uh, not to us at Athabasca University, where <laughs> we've been doing this for uh, now for over 20 years, and yeah. before that, using other means.
2: Well, thank you for pointing that out, and it is, of course, something I remember hearing about, that, that many universities were starting to offer online uh, courses. I remember hearing about some students that even though they were at Their university and living in residence, uh, they were still participating online uh, to their courses that were being streamed. So it's interesting that that happened. Of course, you point out COVID as well, and I suppose that on a worldwide basis, uh, it has thrown education into trial by fire, you might say. So there has been some challenges, but as you say, we're finding out that that is something that will probably be utilized in the future as we get more and more comfortable with this as we find out more and more ways to uh, deliver these things in a more capable manner uh, both for the instructors as well as for the receivers the students that are getting this information so blockchain that's something i guess that is now being looked at that could be a way that even though there are some issues with it uh, as you point out later on in your article but the advantages that it brings uh, to the table are, are numerous as well. So there are some things that need to be worked out with that, and it certainly looks like it is something that could help facilitate the implementation of what you just pointed out about these millions of, of students that are going to be uh, able to learn if only they had access somehow.
0: Yes, and uh, blockchain combined with open educational resources Um, uh, well, the open educational resources have been identified by UNESCO, uh, as being essential for the, uh, achievement of sustainable development goal four, which is education for all. And what it means is that having open educational resources, um, will not be a panacea for education, uh, but they will be a contributor. Uh, to the ability of institutions to deliver learning in a cost-effective manner uh, anywhere around the world. And open educational resources are, uh, um, they could be lessons, they could be videos, they could be podcasts. Um, uh, The key element of them is that they are freely available under an open license, so as anyone can use them. And a key feature for teachers and for students is that you can adapt them and change them however you want to fit your circumstances. And so it's felt that they are extremely important for uh, meeting these goals of universal education. And blockchain uh, is one way of facilitating that. One of the problems with OER now is they're difficult to find and uh, they're housed in many different repositories. And uh, blockchain being a distributed uh, ledger system uh, will allow uh, open education resources to become uh, more easily available.
2: Now for people that may not be familiar with blockchain or understand how that works, could you sort of encapsulate that for for us?
0: Yes. uh, uh blockchain is a distributed ledger so um if people don't know what a ledger is that's uh, uh, where you put items into a into columns and tables and you use that in order to uh, uh, to organize the uh, content and uh, the key about blockchain is that it's not just in one place it's distributed all over the network so it can be accessible Uh, from anywhere and uh, the information that's recorded can be shared uh, by different people in in the community. And it can be either public or private. You can make it fully available to everyone or you can uh, keep the blockchain available only to the people in your particular uh, uh, institution or organization. And as you mentioned, uh, Bitcoin, is the most uh, common example of that, that, uh, that people are aware of. But uh, the key aspects of it is that, uh, of, of this distributed ledger, is that it's not controlled by anyone. Once it goes out there, it's available to anyone and it can be accessible from any node. And uh, there's no centralized authority needed uh, for it to, to continue. However, because each block is secure, um, people can't go in and change the block. What they can do is create another block on top of the, one, the original one that is linked to it. So as if somebody puts out an open educational resource, let's say a lesson or a course in a particular subject, um, they put it out, they want to make sure that their name and their institution is recognized. Um, they don't want people to plagiarize it. Mm-hmm. And they can't do so because if anyone takes the material and uh, makes a change to it, it creates another block. And that block links back to the original. And then people can change it again and put in another block. And these blocks can go on, but they're all, all related and chained uh, to the original block. So it, uh, it, 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 it's a great way of ensuring that your content will be recognized and uh, that people can use it and share it, but that you will always uh, 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 have your uh, contribution recognized and it stops uh, plagiarism mm-hmm. and things like that.
2: Right. Thank you for pointing that out. I was just going to mention plagiarism. So how does this become an advantage for education?
0: Um, from uh, ways that I've just mentioned, it, 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 it's secure and uh, uh, it's immutable. You can't change mm-hmm. the block. You can add blocks, but you can't change them. Whereas now uh, people can go online, take your, uh, 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 take your lesson or whatever you produce, change it, alter it, plagiarize it, do what they want with it. It's stamped, So as we know, uh, when it came out and when each block was produced so we can uh, uh, follow uh, follow the changes and uh, ensure the validity of the uh, content and of the value chain
2: okay so so there you have that that advantage i guess the other thing is that it also puts all the things that you might be looking for or needing in one place so it's easier to access as well
0: well, actually, uh, it's easier to access because it's distributed all over the network. Oh, so uh, uh, the blocks uh, um, are not in one place. Right. So they can be anywhere and uh, uh, they can be accessed uh, much more easily by people uh, wherever they are. And uh, it's sort of a, a secure way of ensuring that it, uh, um, if for example, if it's in one place, then if that uh, network goes down, you have no access to mm, it. Right. Um, this you will always have access to it, no matter where it is.
2: Uh, you mentioned in your article that the the materials are key to supporting the UN Sustainable Development Goal number four, as you mentioned, and that is ensuring that there's inclusive and equitable uh, quality education and promoting lifelong learning opportunities for everyone. So are they looking at this technology as a way of of perhaps rolling this out in the future?
0: UNESCO is promoting open educational resources. And uh, yes, uh, they have been looking at the blockchain, uh, but what they're doing is it's the partners who work with UNESCO. UNESCO basically, uh, um, they promote it and then they ask people, look Mm. at this and support this, and they recommend it. And so it's been recommended uh, uh, for open, open educational resources, mm-hmm. and there are different organizations around the world looking into the to the uh, uh, implications uh, of it. And uh, it's just beginning; it's in very much in the early stages. Right.
2: Yeah now professor you you sounded quite proud when you mentioned Athabasca University and, and doing online training uh, for as long as 20 years as you mentioned how how has Athabasca approached this and and what are you doing now in terms of the kind of online learning uh, that you're presenting for students
0: Well Athabasca University as I mentioned is uh, has been in uh, in online learning uh, longer than anyone since the beginning of uh, online learning. And, uh, we're sort of, uh, um, how do we say it? When, when people have just come on now and they see all kinds of problems, mm. these are problems of online learning that we have, uh, come across resolved and done better with, right. uh, over many years. And what we find is people, are not really willing to look at uh, the literature. There's a whole research literature on how to do online learning, and uh, at Athabasca, uh, we believe we do it better than uh, 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 better than anyone else. And uh, now, as far as blockchain is concerned, this is a new concept, yes. and I brought I I'm bringing it up at the university, right? But we haven't taken any steps towards it yet. Uh, we have uh, been using open educational resources uh, for quite some time, and uh, uh, we are implementing those, but uh, not with blockchain as yet. Uh, the uh, one of the leaders in uh, in blockchain in implementation is uh, actually the whole country, the island of Malta, mm. where they declared themselves to be a blockchain island. Mm. And they have been doing work in, uh, in using blockchain, particularly for the certification of credentials. And uh, most people believe that certification of credentials uh, will be the main use for blockchain in, in education. Hmm. Uh, and mainly because they're secure, immutable, yes. and controllable by the student.
2: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNT-FM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also catch our previously recorded interviews and conversations of Moment of Truth on your favorite podcast platform. My guest is Professor Rory McGreal. He is a professor and uh, UNESCO and ICDE Chair in Open Educational Resources at Athabasca University. We're talking to him about a chain, he, uh, rather an article he authored in uh, the conversation entitled, How Blockchain Could Help the World Meet the UN's Goal, Global Goals in Higher Education. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show. So, Professor, as we, we think about blockchain, it's as you say, something that could be used for open source education. But there are challenges with it, I understand, as well.
0: Oh, uh, yes, there are. And uh, they need to be resolved uh, um, as as the implementations go forward. Things like, uh, what happens if somebody puts fake content up there? Mm. It's persistent. It stays there forever. What if it's illegal content? Mm. Or even just unwanted content, right? And what if uh, somebody leaks your personal data and puts it up there? Mm. Um, these are uh, these are problems that uh, that need to be addressed. And uh, again, um, uh, the bigger the system, the more chances you have of unexpected failures. Yeah. And uh, uh, one that uh, came up recently was there was an article. Uh, 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 uh in in some newspapers a few weeks ago of uh, somebody who lost their encryption key. yes mm-hmm. and they lost so many million dollars that's because right. they could not remember their com- encryption key. that's right. And uh, uh, this is a common problem and uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, there's very few of uh, your audience who have not at some point lost uh, lost their password. Yeah. So uh, that again is another problem. So we have to w- work out these problems uh, in order to make sure that the implementations can go forward uh, effectively.
2: You know, as you as you say that, in terms of these blocks being created on top of blocks, so that it always goes back to the originator um, and the original source that was created. Um, in terms of the things that you're you're talking about, from the challenges. Of either security or unwanted information that is up there, once once a block is created, that the person that created that, as you say, it can't be deleted, it can't be changed, and it's up there. But is there? It, could anyone create a block then?
0: Uh, yeah. Oh, yes, anyone. But they'd have to create their own blockchain system if. If, for example, a university puts in their blockchain, they will control who okay. uh, who can create blocks for that chain. Right. And but if it's uh, open, somebody creates their own blockchain, then yes. they can put it up there. And uh, so again, um, there are ways and means of safeguarding the uh, information in the blocks.
2: Mm. As you look at this this technology. And as you pointed out, a couple of those things, what do you see? And this is just one part of the picture, as you say, because this could be the way of delivering it. Uh, But we all know there's other challenges that would face students accessing the information, and that could be just from a technological perspective in terms of uh, having a correct uh, Internet access, uh, the kind of a delivery system that is... Uh, sustainable and reliable for them to access the information, correct?
0: Oh, yeah, yes, uh, they would have to have uh, a reliable internet connection in order to do that. And this is important. I think that COVID has brought to light to just about anybody with with any sense that we have to ensure that our students everywhere have a solid, uh, robust Uh, internet connectivity, Mm -hmm. and the means to connect to it. Uh, We're not living in a world without internet anymore. All jobs, all jobs require some kind of internet uh, skills. And uh, uh, we're not living in that world where we can ignore it anymore. And uh, to have uh, students who, uh, through, uh, uh, I don't know, through poverty or through uh, uh, living in rural areas, etc., and who do not have access, it's important. It's, I believe it's essential for our government to ensure that uh, all of our learners have access to uh, good, solid Internet uh, connectivity.
2: Well, there there is the, the claims uh, of the government saying they are moving forward on those kind of commitments and hopefully that uh, they will follow through on that. Uh, so that uh, people do have uh, better access, and especially specifically in remote areas. But uh, I guess there's other technological advances being made on the delivery of that front as well. I know that uh, uh, Starlink and uh, Elon Musk have their their uh, satellites, low orbit satellites that are being put up there that are going to be uh, an opportunity to uh, and a way for delivering uh, internet to remote communities as well. So I guess there's lots of things moving forward in that area. If we could go back to Athabasca University for a moment, up to now, without the system of something like a blockchain, what, what have you found, if you don't mind sharing some of the stories about the, the, the way you've been delivering this, and some of the challenges that you have had to overcome for students or with students in terms of making sure they can access this in, in remote ways?
0: Well, all we can do is deliver to those students who have the connect connectivity. Mm. Uh, our university uh, ha- doesn't have the capability of uh, of allowing connectivity to everyone. Right. Uh, but what what we do to uh, uh, to alleviate this is uh, is we sent instead of having uh, sorry, uh, in addition to having our courses online, uh, we can put courses onto a uh, memory stick Mm. and we can send that to students Mm. so as they can use it at home and it simulates an online environment. Right. So uh, that's something and the Commonwealth of Learning has been doing this in uh, poor developing countries around the world now for many years. So that's one way uh, uh, that we have done to alleviate it. Now, another way, and uh, it's a major issue in Canada, is that uh, we we assess immigrants and we allow them to come into the country based on their professional qualifications. And once they come into Canada, we don't recognize their qualifications. Mm. (laughs) They're the basis on which we allow them to immigrate in. Right. And when they come... Oh, the Ontario this or the Alberta that won't recognize the the qualifications. Yeah. And so what Athabasca does is we have a, uh, an office that, uh, of tra- credit transfer and we can examine the credentials of people from all different countries, all different areas of the world. And we can say, yes, this is the equivalent of this Canadian qualification. And we give them credit for it. And mm. we allow them to amass uh, their credits, and then we put them into a certificate and uh, which is available and recognizable in Canada. So that's another way that we are uh, uh, helping uh, 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 people to uh, access education in Canada.
2: Interesting. Now, you mentioned putting some of these courses uh, on, a, on a stick, a USB stick that you can send out to students if they don't necessarily have the access, and they can then use that uh, in their own computer. In terms of the professors or the instructors that are teaching these courses, are you recording um, uh, live classrooms for students uh, that can then be utilized after the fact and or are streaming live at the same time uh, for those remote, remote learners. And how does this affect uh, relationships in terms of uh, professors, students? And also, I guess, does it, does it affect uh, contractual things at all in terms of how a professor is, is utilizing their, their expertise?
0: Uh, it does, but uh, we, we've we had many years of experience in it, and our, our uh, faculty are quite happy with the uh, conditions under which they work. The one thing uh, we do not uh, uh, do at Athabasca, uh, I won't say we don't do it uh, 100%, but because uh, we do do a little bit of lecturing, but the idea of canning a lecture mm. and putting it online mm-hmm um, uh, is not, is not our, uh, way of delivering learning. Um, our students can, uh, can, uh, uh, join the class at any time mm-hmm. and, uh, they work at their own independent pace. And, uh, uh, our, our teachers work with the students, uh, on an individual basis. So they say, well, uh, you know, what is your class size? Well, our class size uh, is one-to-one,
1: mm.
0: <laughs> that our tutors and our, our, our facilitators work with students as they're working at their own pace. Mm. And so uh, we, don't, uh, we don't rely on live lectures and uh, mm. meeting the students at a certain time. Mm. And uh, uh, we have uh, uh, many years of experience in this and uh, we receive uh, tremendous feedback from our students how they prefer this system. Mm. Now, I would say that this system is not for everybody. Right. Uh, But I would also say that, uh, actually, uh, I think that, but I know that classroom-based education is not for everybody. Mm. The Mm. high dropout rate uh, uh, attests to that. So we know that classroom-based education is not for everybody. uh, And we think that uh, online education uh, may not be for everybody, uh, as I do. So uh, what we're looking at in the future, there are possibilities of blended education. Yes. You know, there's too many uh, uh, people in education who think in terms of either or. Mm. And we think in terms of both and. Right. And, in fact, many of our students, and I'm talking of thousands of students, are students at other universities who take one or two courses from Athabasca. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're quite we're quite happy with that. And uh, then we have uh, our program students who take nearly all their courses from us. Uh, but if they bring in a course from outside, we're fine with that, too.
1: Well,
2: we appreciate that. And we certainly appreciate your time, Professor, to talk to us about this uh, great idea about uh, how we might be moving forward in terms of delivering education to the many students around the globe that will be needing it in the next number of years. So thank you once again for joining us on the show.
0: Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, uh, Greatly appreciated. Love to spread the word about open educational resources and blockchain. Take care.
2: You too. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Professor Rory McGreal. He is a professor and UNESCO ICED Chair in Open Education Resources at Athabasca University. It's been my pleasure to have him on the show talking about his article in the conversation How Blockchain Could Help the World Meet the UN's Global Goals in Higher Education. And that is... This show for today here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow.
0: This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element,
1: Element, Element FM.